Lord speaks Sri Bhagavan Uvacha. Prajahati yadakaman sarvan parto manogatan atmani evat manatushta stita pragnas taduchate. The Lord of Sri said, O Partha, one who, having renounced all desires born of the mind, is satisfied in the self and by the self, is said to be one whose insight is steady. The one who, having renounced all desires born of the mind. So this is an important statement because it tells us what? That there are desires that are not born of the mind. And that's, of course, us. Shudamars described the self as a unit of will. And Prabhupada was always quick to tell us that the soul had desire. Better put, Krishna has desire. Krishna is will. He's Swarat. Swatantra, Ishwar, Swayam Bhagavan. Satyasankalpa, whatever he wants happens. Just like that. He wants it, it happens. He is volition, will, desire. Means he's alive. This is the life symptom. So, now what is our position? Our life as we know it is our desires. But our desires are in relation to the mind's determination as to the nature of reality based on the input gathered from the senses. As I said many times, we get input from the senses and it's related to the mind. The mind makes determination. The mind functions in two ways. Sankalpa, vikalpa. I like this, I don't like that. Acceptance and rejection. Input comes and the mind accepts and rejects and particulars of our life as we know it, materially speaking, manifest. So, the desires born of the mind that are discussed here, that have to be renounced, they don't have much to do with us other than our identification, misidentification with material nature. So that whole sense of self, that whole personality that we are so much identified with has nothing to do with Krishna consciousness. And now we've been taught from the very beginning that you have a personal relationship with Krishna and that you are an individual. But it's not that person and personality and that individual that you think you are that has a relationship with Krishna, but you. Now, how do you get to that relationship with Krishna? Well, there's two sides to this. You have to dismantle the false personality that's a little thorny and, and problematic and troublesome, and we're resisting that at every turn. And that's just the beginning of the whole thing. To dismantle the false sense of self, that's kind of the thorn, and then to know your real self, that's the, kind of the rose, to cultivate that. But dismantling the false sense of self is the major hurdle and only to the extent that we're actually involved in that, in the context of hearing and chanting about Krishna, are we making any progress? In other words, unless we, we take that hearing and chanting about Krishna and can apply it in relation to the necessity at the moment for our progress, 
only the extent that we can do that are we are really effectively hearing and chanting. So we have to dismantle on the one side. Now, once we do that, what's left? In other words, we have all types of desires born of the mind, and we have to empty ourselves out of those. Now, what are we supposed to do when we empty ourselves out of all desire, all independent will? We're supposed to come under the will of Krishna, right? We want to do only the bidding of Krishna. So he is a supreme will, real will. And we have so many false desires based on identification with the mind. We remove those and we become instrument of Krishna. We move only according to his will. And he wants to relate to us in a particular way. Krishna wants to take service from us in a particular way. And that will start to manifest in us as if it's our own desire. It's his will. And we are becoming one with his will. This is achintibeta beta. Do you understand? In achintibeta beta, what do we usually emphasize? Achintya, bed, and abed. Bed means difference, and abed means non-difference. So we tend to emphasize the difference. Bed. And we say, Abed, we always caution about that. Don't we? We always caution because we don't want to become mayavadis. But we have to remember that both things are there simultaneously and conceivably in the nature of reality, the nature of our being. Bed, abed, one and different at the same time. So the oneness is one with Krishna's will. And the difference is, is that it manifests differently such as the nature of his will, and that is his leela. Krishna is enjoying himself. He's doing his thing. And we can join that and be part of that. So it means to become one with Krishna. Uh-oh. <laughs> Watch out. <laughs> become one with Krishna in such a way, in a dynamic way, that it manifests as if different. Again, all that leela, the art of Krishna leela, is drawn on the canvas of Advaigyantatva, non-dual consciousness. It's all one. Radha and Krishna are one. But they appear as two. And that's more fun. That's religion. But the philosophy is one. Philosophy is oneness. The religion is difference. So it's a religio-philosophical ideology. Religion is rich with ritual and interaction, and philosophy is dry and quiet. So we emphasize the bed, the difference, but we stress that we want a difference based on the oneness. We don't want a difference based on difference. That's what we have now. <laughs> we want difference based on oneness. So all desires born of the mind Someone who's accomplished the meditation has renounced those, he says. And he's satisfied in the self, by the self. This person, Krishna says, he's of steady intelligence. He's stita pragya. He's uh, stita pragna stadguchate. So it's interesting that this term stita pragna, fixed intelligence, is uh, repeated throughout here in Krishna's answer because it tells us that not only is he talking about the most accomplished person, 
but he's talking about degrees of being accomplished. And this is important. We all want to meet the most accomplished person. But mostly we don't even know what the most accomplished status is, neither could we recognize it. And we tend to project that if we are in touch with any degree of accomplishment, real accomplishment spiritually, we tend to project that that we must be in touch with the highest degree of accomplishment to the point where we want to tell everybody else that they're not and therefore they've got a problem and they should join our group and so forth. But um, really, there are levels of what we can call being accomplished in Krishna consciousness or meditation and yoga, and we need to be in touch with someone like that. The better, the better. But as I said earlier, in one sense it takes one to know one, and persons do tend to project beyond their own understanding also attribute qualities and understanding and realization to persons who may not have it and so forth. All this is a waste of time, really. Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasati Thakur did tell us that we should conceive of the guru in the highest way. There's a purpose behind such statements, that we don't think less of a person than it would be appropriate for us in relation to him, the guru that is, such that we will make advancement. You see, really, our ideal is Prem Bhakti. And beyond Prem Bhakti, a development within Prem Bhakti, for that matter. Our ideal is something that cannot be attained in this lifetime. I said earlier, don't be too concerned about when you'll be able to sit down and just do a nam bhajan like Haridas Thakur. Don't be too concerned about that. Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasthi Thakur himself said. And again, I don't, it doesn't mean you should be lazy, but don't be too concerned. In this life. It may take lifetimes, was his point. Now, even if you could do that, if you become Swarup Siddhi, self-realized, in Bhavu Bhakti, and you come to Prem, and so they die, you have to die then. <laughs> you have to understand that. You have to die then, because the body cannot contain Prem. Mahaprabhu tried to contain the Prem of Radha. What happened to him? Mahaprabhu is performing what we call Acharya Leela, among other things. Acharya Leela means the Lord is coming as the Acharya to teach. His body could not contain Radha Prem, Radha Bhav. We don't find Radharani having the same kind of contortions as Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. She is fully experiencing the Mahabhav. She may swoon and faint and do crazy things, but her teeth don't come out and chatter and <laughs> perspire blood and, and so many things. Mahaprabhu could not contain that. We think that in our body we will be able to contain, we will attain that and we will contain it. No, it's not possible. And if you do attain that, and then you pass from this world, where will you go? Not to Vaikuntha, not to Goloka. But wherever Krishna is performing his pastimes in the material world, you'll go there for further training, for further association with the Nityasiddha Bhaktas, devotees. And from there, in that context, in that Leela, then when they leave the world to go to Goloka, to the unmanifest Leela, then you go with them. That is called Vastu City. That is perfection. Now to find somebody in Vastu City here, that's pretty rare. Who came here 
So we may talk about like that. Oh, he came from there to here. And we may think like that. But we should know what that is. That's very rare. There has to be a pretty big reason for such a person to be here. Those people usually come when the Lord comes. With him. They come. And when he goes, they go. He can't be without them. They can't be without him. That is the nature of that. So for someone to come from there, that has to be a very, very special reason. Now, we just happened to have found some very special reasons for saying that such has taken place in the example of Thakur Bhakti Binod. He was called even by the media of the time, Seventh Goswami, because of the nature of his work in renovating the Sampradaya and so forth. He didn't pose himself as such, but Bhakti Sarasri Thakur taught his followers to think like that. And then his followers thought of him like that. Because Bhakti Thakur was said to have prayed for Raya Vishnu, for Krishna to send someone to help him, something like that. So they put that together in that way, and then he taught. We should always think of the Guru as the Nityasiddha. He taught like that. Of course, that may be understood in different ways. Guru means Krishna also. Krishna is Nityasiddha. So it means we should think in such a way that we have full regard, because that will bring our progress. When the Lord reciprocates with us and comes before us in some capacity to teach us about himself, we should pay all attention there. We should have all regard. This is the underlying spirit of the instruction of Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasvati But as it come to pass, then you hear everybody's Nityasiddha nowadays. Everybody's. Okay. <laughs> Then you start to wonder, are there any, somebody asked me, are there any sadness to this? Does this work? I said, Prahlad, Narda. <laughs> they are considered sadness to There may be others, too, <laughs> who have taken that route and become successful. It means through practice they become siddhas. Fellow was encouraged to hear such things. So here what we find Krishna's answering Arjuna's question, but he's talking about different levels of accomplishment. And any really accomplished person is far, far, far above us. And accomplished means capable of teaching us, instructing us, guiding us. We have to try to get in touch with such a person. This is the idea. As I've mentioned here in my commentary, Ramanuj has given an explanation of what Krishna is talking about here in this section, such that he finds four different types of people here. And now just listen to what he thinks of in terms of being accomplished. He begins at the lowest end of the spectrum with pratyahara, and at the end with samadhi. But he's using the fourfold differentiation, traditional one. Jiva Goswami has given a fivefold, adding that druvanusmriti, but else, usually it's considered pratyahara, dharna, dhyana, Samadhi. So he says that Krishna here in this section is talking about persons who haven't fully controlled the, the mind. Imagine that. Doesn't that sound low? <laughs> it may be a lot higher than, than you think. But he has, or she has, controlled the senses. But the mind is not fully fixed. And then those who have Control the mind. Let me read it. From the highest stage to the lowest. In the highest stage of samadhi, 
all material desires have been uprooted. So the desires don't even exist anymore. Then step down. Oh, he's on the level of Dhyan. Then he's subtle form of desires there. Like hankering, predisposition, and so forth. But he doesn't, doesn't have to act on that. Those seeds are flooded by his, by his bhakti, by his devotion, so they don't have a chance to fructify, but they're not yet uprooted. And so through repeated chanting and hearing and so forth, they're eliminated. And he thus consciously, he controls anger and desire and when happiness comes or distress comes, he relates to them in a particular way so as not to be implicated by them and perpetuate a life of karma. But the experiences are still coming from his prarabdha, manifest karma. Then third, his mind is not yet mastered. He must practice indifference to elation and depression of the mind. And lastly, the fourth level, entry level, his, uh, his enlightenment, his accomplishment, the term is used here, involves controlling the senses even though the mind is uncontrolled. So all these are included here in this Tita Pragya. And we're somewhere beneath all of that. 56, and this is the last verse we'll discuss tonight. Dukeshu anudbhigna manaha sukeshu bhigatasprihya vitaraga bhaya kroda uchate. Amid suffering and happiness, his mind is neither deluded nor delighted. He was free from desire, and whose passion, fear, and anger have subsided is said to be a stage of steady mind. So here, dukeshu refers to the threefold miseries, adhyatmic, adibotic, adidaivic, miseries from the one's own self, miseries from others, or miseries that arise from natural causes, like excessive heat and cold. This is all dukeshu. And all dukeshu is what? All dukeshu is the reaction from our past. It's all pop. It's all from our karma. Bhakti is characterized by kleshagni, Shubhada, and four other things. But first means klesh, kleshag means pure bhakti is characterized by freedom from distress. That involves then what? Eradicating the cause of distress. What is the cause of distress? At its root, avidya, ignorance, which causes us, when it's there, to act in certain ways and accrue karma. And a karma is accrued over so many lifetimes, and it's in different stages of manifestation. We eradicate karma through our spiritual practice. We come under the shelter of the guru, but it's not that the day that we get initiated, all our karma goes away. Now, Prabhupada used to teach us that the guru takes the karma of the disciple. True, but what does he do with it? (laughs) What does it mean he takes the karma of the disciple? It means that if you become initiated by a guru, that the guru takes charge of your life, and your life is your karma at the moment, Now something else is being factored into your life, real life, Bhagavad Bhakti. But he takes your karma, means he takes your life into his hands and sets up parameters for you to work within such that the karma that constitutes your present life will be relaxed enough that you can have a life in relation to Krishna in a beginning way of spiritual practice. 
like I've given an example before, just like if you max out your credit cards, then an alternative is to declare bankruptcy. So what happens when you declare bankruptcy is that you get a lawyer and then you come under the shelter of the court's protection. It doesn't mean that all your debts are paid, necessarily, but the lawyer, the court, negotiates with the creditors. They're able to come to the bankruptcy hearing, every one of them. They're supposed to be notified, and then they show up and they say, he owes me this, Your Honor. He owes me this, Your Honor. He owes me this. And so then there's some negotiation that takes place. And something is paid. Well, I say, will you take 10% or nothing? I'll take 10%. And then the person who didn't have a life, his life was only paying his debts. He couldn't even keep that up. Gets some relief. He pays something and he has some money to spend, too, for fun, for his own life. So coming under the shelter of the guru is like that. He takes your karma. It means he doesn't uh, hocus-pocus it away and now you're fine. You have no karma. You have no karma, then you're liberated. You don't have karma and you're liberated in the sense that it, you're in a potential position for that. Now, the, the potentiality for that has come into your life. Otherwise, it's not possible. Now the potentiality for that has come into your life. So you stay within those parameters. The debts are paid down, and you have a life, and that life means the cultivation of Krishna consciousness, hearing and chanting. That develops, the karma diminishes, and how does it diminish? How are the debts paid? Last in line are paid first. They're easily dealt with. It means the apradabdha, the unmanifest karma, kuta, bij, in this order, the karma is eradicated. So while you're practicing Krishna consciousness right now, hearing about Krishna, karma that you're due is being destroyed. Now, it's not the karma that's already manifest, the prarabdha, which is your present life, you, your personality that we talked about before. We see that that doesn't change so quickly. <laughs> Our nature doesn't change very quickly. You know the story of the scorpion and the camel, right? Scorpion wanted to cross the river and asked to ride on the camel's hump, which would be above the water. Camel said, no way. <laughs> I know your nature. You'll bite me. No, no, he said, I won't. I promise. Just take me across. If you do that nice thing for me, how could I do such a mean thing to you as to sting you? And it made sense to the camels. He said, hop on. He went across the river, got to the other side, and Scorpion bit him and jumped off. He said, what'd you do that for? He said, ah, I can't change my nature. <laughs> so it's difficult to change one's nature, but it can be changed, but you can't change it. But Krishna can change it. Krishna consciousness can change it. From above it can be changed. But on your own, there's no hope for that. But by divine intervention, it's possible. But even that will take some time. But don't think you're not making any progress. So many karmic reactions that have not even manifest yet will never get the chance to manifest. And the last thing that remains is the parabdha karma, that's which manifests right now. And that is diminishing as it plays itself out and you don't react to it by getting further implicated in it. When somebody comes up to you and insults you or your enemy appears online, 
or <laughs> suing you or whatever may be the case, you have to be careful how you react to those things. You don't want to react in such a way. You don't want to take the bait, really. That's what it is. It's your karma, the karmic world baiting you. You want to let it pass. Tolerate, tolerate, grin and bear it, and try to come to the point of seeing what's really taking place. Is this karma is coming, and my past is coming to get its satisfaction. What the seeds I sowed in the past are now coming, bearing fruit. They want their satisfaction. Take it, take it, and be gone. You start to see it as friendly. This must have been uh, Brahma's prayer to Krishna after he stole the cows, one of them. Beautiful prayers there. Shudamarsh paraphrased this verse. The environment is friendly. It means that, oh, one who goes on tolerating everything that comes and remains fixed in his service to Krishna, knowing that all these things are due to me from what I've done in the past, doesn't react to them inappropriately and thus become implicated further in that, those things retire and this person becomes the rightful heir to the kingdom of God. He becomes qualified to enter there. We focus on the fact that what our life is, is our sadhana, our practice. This is what we're really doing. We're trying to get real estate in the land where there is no death. That's what we're working on. Everything else is just busy work. It's our karma playing itself out. So get located on the map where you are and where you're going and what you're doing. Map of the inner landscape and try to see, I want to make some progress there, inside. And other stuff I tend to it as much as I have to. Dutifully, appropriately, fully, but know it for what it is. And if you're really doing that, if you say, who am I? I'm a sadhaka. At least you can say that. Mahaprabhu told you, your swarup was Krishna Das in the basic sense. He told Sanatana Prabhu. So think like that. I'm Krishna Das. Jivera swarup hoi Krishna Nityadas. This is what I am first and foremost. From the morning I wake up, I pray, let me put my right foot down first and take every step throughout the day thereafter in Krishna's service. Om Tad Vishnu Paramam Padam Sada Pushyan Tisurayo Dilavachaksaratatam Vishnu Yat Paramam Padam Srinamarsh gave a beautiful spontaneous commentary on this Rig Veda Mantra. His feet are above, and through the feet he's looking down. Like the sun, it's compared. Those feet are fulgent, and seeing everywhere, everywhere we go, everywhere we do. And we should walk in the world as if the feet of the Lord are above our head. It's not like we're hiding. <laughs> he can see with those feet. And let our life be guided like that. Mahaprabhu said what? that when you get initiated, you get a spiritual body. And he was talking about the sadhaka deha. He wasn't saying, when you get initiated, we give you your siddha deha, and we tell you it's like this, and you do like that. That can come later. When you get initiated, you get a spiritual body because your ordinary material body becomes what we call a sadhaka deha, the body of a sadhaka. 
not a conditioned soul, but a sadhaka. Then there are things that the sadhaka deha must do to function in terms of that purpose. And as we do that, that very body itself becomes spiritualized, sadhaka deha. And as it does, the siddha deha comes into focus as well. But even as the siddha deha becomes in, fully in focus, the sadhaka deha is becoming spiritualized. We interact with material sense objects. To that extent, our body has some material quality to it. We interact with spiritual sense objects in service to Krishna. To that extent, our body and our mind has actual spiritual quality. So we should live our life as if I'm a sadhaka. Cultivate that. Karma gradually will spend itself out. For the jnani, who's not engaged in bhakti, or who's engaged in bhakti for ulterior purpose, let's say, for just for liberation. We would call that an ulterior purpose. Dharma projita kaita gotra. That's not what we're interested in, but someone may do. That's all right. Liberation is not a bad thing. There are different kinds of liberation. There's so many Vaishnavas who want liberation in Vaikuntha. We want prem, priti, love of Krishna. So that interest will not be in our interest. To be interested in liberation of any sort will be an impediment to the development of priti, of prem. But if you want to go and live in Vaikuntha on the outskirts or as an inside, the main quarters of Narayana, many positions are available there, types of liberation you can get. For the jnani who wants a certain kind of liberation, in this body he can achieve what we call jivan mukti, liberated in the body. What his body is, is his parabdha karma. When the parabdha karma is done, playing itself out, he's not reacting to it. He's just watching it. He experiences it. He doesn't react to it and become implicated in it. When it's done, that means his body's finished. That is what the body is. Then he gets what we call videha mukti, final mukti, liberation. Videha, without the body. The devotee situation is a little different. For many devotees, it will be like that. Depends on uh, what type of devotion we're interested in. In general, in bhakti, what happens is that the Lord has some purpose for his devotee. Sanatana Goswami was told by Mahaprabhu, I have some purpose that I want to perform through your body. Therefore, he forbade him for throwing himself under the Rathiatra cart like he wanted to, ashamed of his body's condition for fear that the Lord might touch him as he had previously in Banaras. Mahaprabhu, of course, did touch him and all his sores went away and he said, look, I have a purpose for you. And so, the body of Sanatana Goswami that is for the purpose of the Lord in this world. That means it's surcharged with his shakti and his parabda. Well, he doesn't have any parabda. He is one of those nitya siddhas. But one who's a sadhana siddha has some parabda. Krishna will preserve that. So you'll see a certain disposition remains and so forth. And Just like uh, Prabhupada had certain things he liked to taste and things he didn't like to taste. So you think, well, what, what was that? I thought, you know... It's all the same. It's when it comes to non-dual, this doesn't taste good. Why? I don't like that. Give me that. And Jimuna would cook something. He'd say, cook that again. Put that in the book. <laughs> Keep that. I won't, every time I come here, I want that. Maybe probably it's not the best example. I think of him in a different way. But for a sadhana siddha, that Krishna may package the parabdha in such a way that it remains intact. And he surrounds that with his swarup shakti and functions as he likes 
to that devotee for his purpose. And then at the time of his departure from the world, the good prabdha goes to those who he likes, <laughs> and any bad prabdha that may be left goes to his enemies. Krishna makes such an arrangement. So, here anyway, in this verse, what Krishna is saying is that Dukeshu, first of all, Dukeshu Abhigna, he's not agitated in the mind by any kind of suffering, Sukeshu, or any kind of joy. He's not overly affected by that. He's neutral to that. He knows where it's coming from and what it is. He doesn't misidentify it for something other than what it is. Vita Spriha, Vita Raga, Bhaya Kroda, Stitadi, Munir Uchate. Without fear, without anger, without passion, whose mind is steady. So, we should be able to look at someone's face and determine whether they're actually in such a position or imitating such a position. So our interest here is in understanding the status of real devotees, one of whom, or more than one, we should be in touch with and relation with if we're actually living a life as, as a sadhaka. And we should relate to them appropriately with proper regard. We should see even their sadhaka deha in a spiritual light. We should know that the sadhaka deha of great souls is fully spiritualized. Examples of this, I've cited here Vishwanath's example to illustrate the point that the sadhaka deha becomes spiritualized was reference to whom? Dhruva. We hear in Bhagavatam, he went back in his own self-same body. Kopakumar is another example. His sadhakadeya was his siddhadeya. He was in a sadhakadeya, but that was preserved. And it was a gopadeya, and he had a gopadeya, and the same body became his swarup. Such things are possible. So, I've cited here also one, uh, in one of the footnotes, the comment of Vishwanath Chakravarti with regard to Dhruva and his example, and it comes actually, it's worth mentioning, it comes in the 10th canto of the Bhagavatam in the 29th chapter, 10th verse. It's a discussion there of the sadhaka gopis, gopis who came to Krishna Lila through sadhana. And when they took birth in Swarup city, the Upanishads, for example, they, they chanted the Gopal Mantra. This is the mantra of our Sampradaya, Gopal Mantra, and the corresponding Gayatri Mantra is Kam Gayatri. Of course, we also chant Brahma Gayatri, but it's redundant in a sense because Kam Gayatri is Brahma Gayatri after hearing about the gopis. But we do it in, in relation to the conception of Daibhavarnashram primarily, although we understand it has ultimately Brahma Gayatri that is a spiritual color above and beyond Varnashram. The reason that Bhaktisiddhanta Sastitakura gave it was because he was interested in establishing what Bhaktivinotakura called Daiva Varnashram. He recognized that people who came to the Paramhamsa Marg, the Bhakti Marg, they were nonetheless not Paramhamsas the day they came in. So he fashioned, a, based on the 11th canto of Bhagavatam, a concept of Varnashram that was Daiva, that was for devotees. It's not the ordinary Varnashram. And so he created the Brahmins and sannyasis and so on and so forth. This is something that should be still pursued and developed to some extent. But anyway, that main mantra is a Gopal mantra. 
And Kama Gayatri is the corresponding Gayatri. This is what Brahma received. Brahma did everything with this. Created everything. He realized everything. Both sides. It means the mantra is Krishna. So the creation is inside Krishna. The effect is in the cause. So he could draw power for creation for that. He could draw power for self-realization and up to Surup Siddhi, actually. He could draw from the mantra. So, anyway, gopis, they were sadhana siddhas, some of these. They chanted Gopal Mantra. They entered into Krishna Leela. Krishna played his flute in Raspanchajai, Rasa Leela. And these particular ones, they couldn't come that night. There was an impediment. Their husbands were an impediment. They locked the doors, kept them. So they went into meditation. So this is the high-end example of really what's being talked about here. They were in meditation upon Krishna. The suffering and pain of their separation, that caused anything inauspicious from their background to go away. And their positive meditation upon Krishna caused all their auspicious, whatever might be auspicious, to go away. (laughs) So both things are mentioned here. Sukeshu, Dukeshu, removed, freed from that. They are a nice example of this. So we can use their examples practically in our life to get inspiration from. Can you explain more about the um, Bija and Kuta and the different levels of Karma before fruit of life. Well, uh, the parabdha you understand. That's what's manifest now. It's bearing its fruit right now. The bija is the seed form, which means it's in the form of desire, a predisposition to act in a certain way. And you can check that easier than what's already happening. So it's more visible. And the kuta means that it hasn't risen to the point of actually manifesting as a seed yet. And Abhrabdha is just kind of like the whole pool of... It's unmanifest entirely. Kuta means it began to manifest, but it hasn't reached the point of being a seed and being part of your your active life. The bead is actually almost part of your life. And Parabdha, of course, is your life. And... All of these stages, even the parabdha, can be removed in bhakti. This is an interesting point. Whereas in, by other methods, by jnan, for example, you can't remove the parabdha. So the jivan mukta in jnan mark has to deal with his parabdha until it's gone and he's gone. But the uh, parabdha of it can be removed in bhakti by namsan kirtan, for example, our main process. And what's a good example of that? Who can say? Example of one whose parabdha was eradicated by chanting the holy name. Haridas Thakur. Haridas Thakur's parabdha, as it appeared, was to be a Muslim and untouchable. Mahaprabhu embraced his body and danced with it on the shores of Puri when he passed from the world. And then he set it down, and with his own hands, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu dug the samadhi in which he placed the body of Haridas Thakur and covered it up and said, whoever worships this place purchases me. And they worshiped the body of Haridas Thakur. So what was an untouchable body became a worshipable body 
by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu himself. And how did that come about? By Harinam. So Harinam has this power. Yanamadeha Shabananu Kirtanad. Yanamadeha Swadyopi. There's two verses and I'm probably combining them. The prophet did that. <laughs> Swadyopi. Anyway, very quickly, immediately, who chants Harinam, he becomes qualified for Vedic rituals and more. It means he becomes qualified as a Brahmin to do Brahmin's work and more. And Haridastaku is the example. So such power is in the holy name to change your nature. Very difficult. But it's there, possible. So you, we should see that our chanting is changing our nature. I can tell you, my nature's changed. You didn't know me before. <laughs> and you wouldn't have wanted to. <laughs> so everybody can say that to some extent, probably. But I have practical experience. And Harinam Prabhu has the power to change one's one's nature dramatically. So we should put all faith in the holy name. Anything else? That eradication, that is that only Sudhana? Yeah. Well, Namavas is an interesting phenomenon. Namavas means a semblance of the name, a shadow of the name. That can eradicate all karma. But Namavas means there's no offenses. And Namavas has that potential. It has the potential to give you liberation. In that sense, it has the potential to free you from your karma. But it doesn't happen all the time. It can. Just like so many things I mentioned in the scripture. If you do this, if you do that, this happens, and uh, so many wonderful things. In Bhakti Shastra, Rupa Goswami said, I say it like this because there are examples, and I've given them, where this has happened. But it doesn't mean it happens every time to everybody. But to actually eradicate the Parabdha Karma, like Haridas Thakur, and function, as he did, on behalf of the Lord entirely, that is requires the... Shudhanam. You mentioned that uh, that a guru or a Vaishnava who's achieved prosperity and he descends is very rare. You gave the example of Bhaktivedanta, or you mentioned the idea of, of Shudhanam in discussion while he was in Sakiraz. Still, there's a certain qualification for guru, and you know the terms Mahabharat comes, Shudhabhakta. Can you give us some? There has to be some level of accomplishment to serve in that capacity. That's what you're saying, right? To serve in the capacity of the guru, then there has to be some level of accomplishment. And on the other side, the disciple has to look for some qualification in his guru that he's confident that Mm -hmm. at some point he might have to ask down the road. Well, Well, Jiva Goswami has talked about three types of great devotees, he calls them, Mahabhagavatas. The first type is one who's situated in their swarup in the world, and he gives the example of Narada Muni. So Narada Muni means with his vina, vina is part of his swarup. He's actually in his swarup, and so <laughs> he's not even in a sadaka deha, he's in his swarup. It's rare to find those types. That's one type. And then he said another type is who doesn't have... Um, any material desire, but the implication is may not be fully situated in his surupi. He gave the example of Yuva Goswami, of Sukadeva Goswami, in this regard. He had no material desire. He heard Bhagavatam, 
and he began the cultivation of Srimad Bhagavatam, positive cultivation of Srimad Bhagavatam. And of course, you come to the Bhagavatam from that position and you take to it like water. That's the Advaigyan Tattva. It's the ground for real positive culture of Krishna consciousness proper. And then the third example was again Narada Muni, but before he got his Swarup and he was doing his uh, practice sadhana and he got the darshan of Krishna and Krishna then disappeared just to increase his hankering. He called him Kuyogi, a pseudo-yogi, because he was attached to living in the forest at the time. <laughs> so he said he had to become a real yogi. And um, in this stage, the devotee has some desire, but the flood of his bhakti doesn't allow it to manifest at all. Sridhar described three types of gurus, and I've studied the Bhakti Sandarbha, and I came across Jiva Goswami's description. I found some correspondence with what Sridhar had talked about in a poetic way when he said, there are three types of gurus, and there's no other anywhere reference that I've come across anywhere that could possibly correspond with what he was talking about other than what Jiva Goswami gave. Sridhar was not one to speak about something that didn't have some background in scripture to support it. So he said three types of gurus. One has both feet in the spiritual world and extends one here. The other has one foot here and extends one there. The third one has both feet here, but his eyes are fixed there. So we say the beginning level has both feet here, but it has his eyes fixed there in terms of Rupa Goswami's classifications and so forth. Sridhar said, Ruchi means safe. That's prapandas. That means some attainment. Ruchi is the basis of our self. The taste, the particular taste we develop for Krishna is the basis of our relationship with Krishna. So, it's like if you have a mountain, then the, the top is nishta, so it's difficult to get to the top. But when you get to the top, then the destination is the other side in the valley. You get to the top, then you can look back and say, whew, that's a relief. And you can look forward, and you can see the other side. And with enthusiasm, you can just run down the other side of the hill. That still may take some time, but you could even slip and fall, but it would be hard to roll all the way back to the top and <laughs> down the other side again. So... Shudamar spoke about it in that way. He said, in Ruchi Bhakti, one is in a safe position and can do good for others, can give help. That means prapandas in the language of Bhakti Thakur, some positive attainment. There's no real positive attainment in Nishta, but one is in a position to bring about that positive attainment because one's practice is steady, fixed, continuous, doesn't stop. Any other question? Yes. The follow-up to this idea of different levels of gurus um, and your discussion about how the disciple likes to see his guru, or it's encouraged by Bhakti Siddhartha, is encouraging the disciple sees his guru as, you know, a very highest level. Yeah. I've heard different opinions from devotees who've taken up the service of initiating disciples and things. Some devotees feel like they, to avoid hypocrisy, they have to tell their disciples, but I'm not really at a very high level. And others say, but you really shouldn't do that because that will disturb your disciple. And, you know, I've, I've heard I've heard 
spiritual masters of Vyasa Puja say, I'm, I'm a Madhima Adhikari, I'm, I'm following the principles, I can be steady in that, I'm, I feel like I'm getting rid of my anarthas, but I don't have that kind of realization that, you know, and I've heard, I've heard spiritual masters say that, and I'm wondering, you know, I think everybody talks like that. It's also the influence of Yoga Maya on great devotees that make them think of themselves as sadhakas and identify as such. And the practical philosophical reality of the closer we come to the infinite, the more we realize our finiteness and small and insignificant. And not a very advanced devotee, one who's not very advanced, will minimize his or her faults and shortcomings. The more one advances, the tendency is just the opposite, that faults become magnified to the point that devotees will talk about things in themselves that they consider faults that we would think would be ornaments if only we could have that. Can we say that it's uh, probably never a good idea for a spiritual master to think that or just to express at least privately that we should be faking our disciples out we want them to to think that we're at a level that we're not at because that will be good for them or something like that. That sounds a little, little odd, yeah. yeah. They, they, no, they should be qualified, and then they should know that they're qualified, and then they shouldn't be afraid to say, I'm qualified, and I can help you, and this is how, and they have to know that. <laughs> they have to know that for sure. So, anyway, there may be so many different types of gurus big topic. But they should have some taste. They should have some ruchi. Before that, then, they're not in a safe position. And um, that's not good. And it's not that, though, there's uh, such a great need. Krishna can provide qualified teachers for anybody who wants one. I don't think, well, I better sacrifice myself. I'm not qualified, but there's a need out there in the marketplace. We're making a lot of devotees. (laughs) It has to have some positive attainment. This is really the basic idea. Not just uh, fighting down something or even remaining steady. I mean, one could stretch to Nishta, but really it has to be some positive attainment, some taste. Then you won't have problems like that. There's no question of pretentiousness. One should be oneself. One should be what one is. And if what is is being what one is, and that causes people to want to hear from him or her about Krishna consciousness and learn, then you have a meaningful relationship. There should be no pretense. No, what do they call the emperor's clothes type scenario. We should be honest devotees, sincere, and if as a result of being that, people become interested in hearing from you and they want to prop you up so they can get a better look and hear from you and so forth, then it should go on in that way. And there's some scope for the guru knowing his appetite, his power of digestion. So if we serve prasadam, then we should want everyone to, to take and not feel at all inhibited about taking prasadam. Prasadam is not a time to be shy. When Rohini, assisting Shimati Radharani, preparing Krishna's breakfast, that breakfast is really a lunch. I mean, he's going out all day. Thakur Bhaktivinoda's song, Bogartik really is about the morning breakfast of Krishna. Big breakfast cooked by Radharani. And while Madhu Mungo, he would eat all day long. He concluded that the belly 
is Brahman. <laughs> Krishna says that he is the fire of digestion within, in 15th chapter of Bhagavad Gita. So the a Brahman, wise as he is, Mother Mongol, he concludes that my belly is Brahman, and I must do three times a day at the Sandhya sacrifice for Brahman. So I have to eat. That have to be fed very nicely. This is my worship. So you eat and eat and eat and never have enough. And he'll eat and sweet rice will fall out into his navel. And he will look very beautiful like that. And Krishna will be watching him and still the food on his plate. And Mother Yasoda will come to him and say, you have to eat. See how Madhu Mangal is eating. You have to eat. So much has been prepared for you. And she's persistent, but ineffective. She calls Rohini. Tell him. Make him eat. Convince him. Tell him what Radhika has gone through all day and all morning in the kitchen to get here in the first place and then to cook. What endeavor? So she says, you have to eat. You have to go out all day. Finally, she, she says, and Radha has done. It's cooked so much. And how will she feel after cooking so long and you're not eating? Okay. <laughs> then he's eating. So this standard is there. That's why you wonder if you go to India why people are saying, eat, eat, eat. It's also uh, was so in this culture to some extent too in days gone by, maybe not now with fast foods and everything, but mother would always want to see her son eat nicely and uh, cooking at home and eat, eat more. I always think of it like that because I know what it takes to cook, especially make a feast and so forth. It takes hours to cook and in 10 minutes it will be gone and I always feel bad. It's only taking 10 minutes and he or she took so long to cook, I should eat more. <laughs> So anyway, the whole idea comes from Krishna Leela itself. point is that when serving prasad, we should make the one who wants to eat feel comfortable and encouraged. You go around with the pot and putting more on the plate, putting more on the plate. Only if there's not enough, then you make the spoon go in the pot. Click, 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 click. <laughs> and then he knows, oh, there's not enough. No, no, no more. But you don't want him looking in the pot. Is there enough? I'll take. And he's hiding that. There's plenty. But if there's not, then by sign language you click. Very subtle. Then everybody knows there's not enough. Okay, no problem. So the point is that the server will put more and more on the plate until you have to put out your hands like this. No, no. No more. Cover your plate. So that's the position of the servant. That's the position of the disciple. Should give all regard for the guru. All regard. If the disciple is told, I'm only so advanced... You cannot offer like this. That will cause some problem. The disciple should feel there that he or she is in an environment that not only he or she can give all, but always required. Such a worthy object of affection and service is the Guru, is Krishna, coming to me locally. So that should be encouraged. At the same time, who eats has to know their digestion, the power of digestion. He also has to know the company he's in and so on and so forth. He has to be an expert. So the disciple should be an environment to be encouraged to offer all service. And everybody should promote that. And Guru may know his power of digestion and say, enough here, enough here. He may be in a company of others and he wants to restrict who are his equals and he may want to adjust accordingly. I'll give you an example. Prabhupada once gave a lecture in Mayapur. And in the course of the lecture he was explaining the term takwar. Takwar means God, actually. And it's a term reserved for very venerable, older paramhamsas, 
great devotees. So anyway, in the course of the lecture, he said, so the spiritual master should be addressed as Thakur, so on and so forth. He finished the lecture. After the lecture, then we went upstairs, following Prabhupada up, and one of Prabhupada's disciples said, so Prabhupada, we would like to begin addressing you as Thakur, like add that to your title. And Prabhupada said, why? <laughs> the Prabhupada, well, you just gave a lecture and said that the spiritual master, he said, oh, not now, not at this time. So it was never, never introduced. So he has his position, say yes, say no. He should know his own digestion, power of digestion. That is for him to know. I didn't think, well, oh, I guess he's not qualified to be called Thakur. That's why he's telling us, don't call him Thakur. He just said, not now. Finished, okay, not now. The guru should know his power of digestion. It's an art. It's a science, it's an art. But if he's qualified, then it's not a problem. These aren't problems unless we're not qualified. Then there are so many problems. It's like a um, snake with a frog in his mouth, big frog. <laughs> it's just an example of giving him Bengal. He can't swallow the frog, can't let the frog go. Uh, <laughs> it's a problem. <laughs> it's a problem for him, it's a problem for the frog, is the point. So shouldn't be like that. He should be able to gobble him up and digest him and have him come out in a, in a transformed uh, form, state, condition. <laughs> so, all right, we talked for quite some time. Let's stop there and take a little prasad. Srimad Bhagavad Gita ki jai. Guru Vaishnav Guru Parampara ki jai. Esi Bhakti Vedanta Sami Prabhupad ki jai. Bhakirak Sikshidev Goswami Maharaj ki jai. Bhakti Sitam Sarsri Thakur Prabhupad ki jai. Shri Bhakti Vrindavan Paribar ki jai. Gaur Bhakti Vrindavan ki jai. Gaur Premanandi. Hey,